This is Kim Burns with What's the Story. Welcome today, though. I've got the Wilkie brothers here. Hello. Yeah, nice to be here. Uh, Thanks for having, having us. We're good, yeah. Uh, summer's winding down, about a week and a half left at home until we're up to school. So. I know. So, uh, Connor and Tucker, now, you've been a Brown. Yeah, I'm going to be a junior. You're going to be a junior. And Tucker, you're... you're Rising freshman, yeah, going this. off. I know, yeah, exciting, definitely. Yeah, nerve-wracking, but exciting for now, sure. But you have the you have the brother there, and I you're, you're fairly familiar with Brown anyway. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Having so. spent a little bit of time. I did. We actually both did when we were um, in high school, like a summer there, a summer program there. We took a class, so... Uh, yeah, I'm definitely familiar with the campus, which is good. All right, so that's very exciting. In the meantime, your backgrounds, I know, uh, with your academics, did focus on being on the debate team? Yeah, we did. Yeah, so we both did debate for uh, four years of high school and then even a little bit of middle school. So uh, we definitely have a lot of experience there. And what does it entail? I know that I would hear, oh, no, no, they're debating in some other state. Was there a, were you ever debating in another country, or how does this work? I don't think we ever went out of country. We yeah. did fly. Um, luckily, there are a lot of tournaments in the East Coast. Uh, it's probably the biggest area, so a lot of them were pretty convenient. But uh, we would fly to certain places, like Kentucky for nationals was uh, probably one of the yeah. farthest flights we did. So, yeah, we would travel a bit, so it was definitely a grind in high school for sure. But I think we both enjoyed it, and it was a really good experience that I think got us both more involved in current events and just keeping up with things. So well, that's why you're here today. Yeah. So we're going to talk a little bit about your generation, Gen Z, and how you're looking at the political candidates and the current political climate, because I think we can all agree that we're going through a, a historical part of what's happening in the United States with the way people are looking at the debate process, mm -hmm. uh, the number of candidates. Yeah. I mean, it's unprecedented. Uh, that we have on the Democratic ticket. Well, not on the ticket. Um, I'm jumping the gun here. But who are hopefuls. And maybe you can help explain what's going on because I've heard that Gen Z is much more progressive in their thinking than people from the baby boomers or the millennials. So let's start with what your take is on all these candidates running. Yeah, so I mean, it's definitely a widespread. Uh, I think, as you said, there is a bit of a, I think at the, the, the first two debates especially, what at least the moderators were really trying to emphasize was sort of this conflict between the more progressive candidates, thinking Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, even Andrew Yang, who's not as well known, uh, compared to more of the old guard type candidates, so like Joe Biden would be the perfect embodiment of that. So that's kind of definitely, I think, the biggest conflict that's come out so far. I would say there is a pretty strong contingent in kind of our generation that is more progressive and sees a lot of these ideas as things that we probably should have enacted years ago, especially looking at the rest of the world. Even the most progressive candidates on the Democratic side are pretty much only proposing things that most of the developed world has already adopted and thinking about like universal health care and paid family leave and all that. We're really the only country of, among developed nations that doesn't have these things. So I think um, my generation does see a lot of these more progressive ideas as things that are actually long overdue, especially uh, in a country with such substantial income inequality as the U.S. Right. So you do know that the opposition to that or the argument from people who aren't as progressive is the tagline, how are we going to pay for it? So what do you think, Tucker? 
Well, I mean, so it depends. It's like an issue-by-issue issue basis, right? So, for example, healthcare, there's really good evidence that even if you'd have to raise taxes a little bit to pay for something like Medicare for All, it would actually save uh, mid like middle-class families on net in the long-term money because right now we pay an extraordinary amount in healthcare premiums because for-profit healthcare companies are focused on that. And so there's really good evidence, you know, that like what the wealthiest people at the top would probably have to pay more if we had a, you know, universal Medicare for All type system, but definitely people who are low-income and even middle-class families would have a like, small tax increase, but definitely would have right, a, you know, on net less money coming out of their pockets because they would no longer have to pay these health care premiums. Yeah, and I, I just said, I think it's also worth noting that if you look at the, the biggest probably policy that this administration has enacted was this massive tax cut for corporations that was basically a multi-hundred billion dollar giveaway for them to do stock buybacks. And that's you know, and people didn't really ask how are we going to pay for that. So there, uh, a lot of things that could be reversed. And even just since there's so much income inequality right now, you can actually raise a really substantial sum by even increasing the taxes on the one percent or even the top point one percent, even by a little bit. Right. Well, obviously under the current administration, that's the way it's going to be. And we can also talk about. Uh, you know, the NRA and all these other things mm -hmm. that uh, need to be addressed from a more progressive standpoint. Um, what about climate change? Yeah, I mean, I'm of the opinion that bold is kind of what we need at this point. This, If there's an issue that we can't afford incre incrementalism for, it is climate change because what all the scientists are telling us is that we're really close to getting to a point where the effects could be irreversible. And in fact, some effects already are irreversible. So, it, yeah, I think this is a really an area where we can't afford moderate incrementalism and really the bolder the better, I think. Okay. And, and so, yeah, just added that, like, I find, you know, when talking to people about the climate change initiatives, it's difficult because people look at things like the Green New Deal and they say, oh, you know, this costs, right, trillions of dollars, how are we going to pay for it? Right. But we're, go we're going to pay for it, right? It's not a question of if we're going to pay for it is, are we going to pay for it now? Or are we going to pay for it, you know, in 40 years when hurricanes and earthquakes, one. yeah, well, and infrastructure is destroyed. Well, I with that. And, of course, uh, people such as AOC, so many people recoil just even hearing <laughs> Her initials right. because of coming in uh, so bold with, you know, sort of just these blanket statements that there, there is no nuance with a lot of these candidates. And I think that's a problem. So that's my next question to you. Let's take uh, Elizabeth Warren. Uh, first of all, the, the top people that I, I, I know, I mean, Bernie Sanders is 77. Elizabeth Warren is 70 years old. Joe Biden is 76. Um, uh, how does that affect your thinking? I mean, are these people too old? I know, I know Gen Z loves uh, Bernie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I personally don't pay too much attention to the age. I mean, as long as their ideas are something that we agree with. And I think just looking at a kind of like Bernie, for example, I think one of the real disconnects between like Generation Z or even perhaps younger millennials compared to the baby boomer generation, and that is kind of how the word socialism is kind of thought of. So I think older generations, just because they grew up, you know, a lot of them like with the Soviet Union, when they hear the word socialism, they think of the Soviet Union and the government controlling all right. aspects of the economy and just obviously stuff that 99% of us don't want. Whereas when you hear Bernie Sanders uh, say like democratic socialism, he's really not talking about any of that. What he means by that is really just creating a structure that allows other people outside the 99% to have a voice and make a decent living. And it's really just about going at some of those inequalities and getting 
money out of politics. So I think that's one of the reasons why I think some of the older generations recoil when they hear these people uh, label themselves as democratic socialists just as they're thinking back to uh, other things that are much, much more radical. No, I, I get that. I think uh, the 1% the of course is scared of losing their status. Mm -hmm. We know that. Uh, so that so going back to my first point with AOC and even on Elizabeth Warren, who, as we know, is a very, very smart woman, uh, there should be, in order for the Dems to have a shot at beating, quote, let's just say the Republicans, let's not even talk about President Trump, mm -hmm. uh, then isn't there an idea somewhere in the party that we have to send a message that's more cohesive and that it's softened a bit so that people can understand what the new you know, socialism really means or the new progression really means so that the moderates can stomach it. Yeah, so my one word that is I actually think it's almost like a little myth that like the way to win elections is by appealing to moderates. Because I think in 2016, right, we kind of tried this with Hillary, right? She was like a central electoral moderate. And you're like, oh, she should be able to do well. And, you know, she didn't, right? Like she, you know, she lost election to Trump. And I think the reason for that is a lot of like working class people, right, the kind of like middle income, like middle of the country white people who voted for Trump were a lot more popular, like a lot favored Bernie in the primaries than Hillary, for example, right? If you use the 2016 election, uh, the Democratic primary election as an almost divide between the progressive wing with Bernie and the modern than Hillary, Bernie consistently won in rural states, right, like Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Kansas, so the Rust Belt states where Trump won the election and also in the middle of the country. And Bernie also won in what are called open primaries, right? So certain states have primaries where Republicans and non-registered voters can vote, and Bernie consistently beat Hillary in those primaries. Because I think we're seeing time and time again that when it comes like working class people, they care less about, right, the word socialism or whether, you know, someone on the news is telling them that someone is too radical left, right? People in the middle of the country who, you know, are making as much money care, am I going to have health care? Are my kids going to get to go to college? Can I afford to put food on the table for my families? And I think having a progressive message that Warren and Bernie and, you know, Andrew Yang and other Democrats on the left are talking about, I think that, you know, we've seen time and time again that that appeals to those people. And if you want to look for evidence, you can look, they do polls, right, with candidates against Trump. And so Bernie and Biden both consistently poll the two best out of any candidates against Trump, right? Despite the fact that one is so far to the Is left. Is that a ticket? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about that, but... I would, but I just think right, the reason for that is Biden has always been popular among working class voters, but also Bernie just has really high favorability, and he just, you know, right, his policies appeal to that kind of voter base. And don't forget that with Hillary, uh, there was an elitist uh, attitude that really turned people off, and Trump, who's actually an elitist, uh, played this, this right. other card of being anti-political, which, as we know, is a big joke for anybody who's running for the White House. So let's just point that out. Right, yeah, and I'm, I think I agree in that I think the way to counter sort of what I would call this fake or deceptive populism by Trump, which is, you know, blaming immigrants for all the problems and meanwhile slashing taxes for corporations, I think the way that the Dems can best counter that is by advocating for a real populism that actually does favor the interests of the 99% and are looking to create a decent life for these people. And I think um, there is somewhat more enthusiasm for that around some of these more progressive candidates. Okay, let's uh, let our listeners know what is going to happen next. So we've had how many debates? Two debates so far? Yeah, yeah. so each over two nights. Yeah. Right, and they're, it's two-tiered, and so you have, uh, like, you know, the A team and the B team. Yeah. At what point uh, do we start filtering people out so that we can start really focusing? It's too, it's too difficult when mm -hmm. you've got this many candidates. 
uh, people aren't following closely enough to make educated decisions when you have this many people running. So what do we do next? Right. So I mean, so what the DNC has been doing is basically for each debate, they kind of up the requirements in order to qualify. Right. So for the first debate, I believe you needed to have something like 1% in, you know, X number of polls or a certain number of donors. And then it became both. And now for the next debate, I believe you need Three, two or three percent in three qualifying polls and something like you know 150,000 donors. And actually, so the idea was that this would be able to be a one-night debate, but I think that there are a couple of candidates such as uh, Tom Steyer who are like right on the border of qualifying, which would make it a two-night debate. So there's definitely going to be less this time. There might be a little more than 10 candidates for the third Democratic debate, and then for the next one to get even lower. But it's kind of difficult because there's you know you don't want to just arbitrarily rule out candidates right by you know just handpicking the ones you like, but you do need some some way of kind of like winnowing the field. Well, you have to. So what do we think about Pete? And everybody has a different way of pronouncing his name. <laughs> Budapeg? Budapeg. He likes hard G's, Budapeg or something like that. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Mayor of South Bend, Indiana, openly gay. He has mm -hmm. a husband. Uh, what does this generation think about that? Does it matter? Do we care? I think, I mean, it definitely in terms of our generation, at least the people I'm trying to buy wouldn't care about that at right. all. Or they see it as like a positive, right? Yeah. Like it's cool to have diversity, yeah. right. I think. Right, yeah. right. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess I haven't, because I guess when I looked into him, Pete, initially, he didn't have a ton of kind of real ironed out policies, which is one reason I found it hard to get really excited about him at the beginning, just because I'm definitely somewhat attracted to Sure. fairly detailed policy proposals but i think he does certainly carry a lot of strengths very good at speaking i think he you know is somewhat inspiring to at least a uh, section of people so well and the reason i ask that goes. is not uh to discriminate but people do discriminate and uh you know we've got uh, a couple of contenders uh like kamala harris uh, right. uh cory booker w would we ever see a ticket where we have, have, have a gay person and a person of color I, I mean, I just ask it because we've got all sorts of types of people here, and there have been biases in the past, uh, but this is a new generation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's definitely possible. And what would be interesting about that is actually, like, if you look at Buttigieg's support, it's, like, almost all among white people. Like, racially, his supporters are, like, not particularly diverse. So putting him with, like, uh, you know, like a person of color on the ticket would definitely be an interesting way to kind of, like, bring different groups of people together in terms of voting base. But yeah, like I think, you know, right, policy-wise, right, my brother and I may have our disagreements with Kamala Harris and, you know, Buttigieg, but obviously, right, if that ended up being the ticket, I think from like a stepping back perspective, right, as you said, having, you know, like a black woman and, you know, a gay man on the ticket would be like a pretty cool thing for sure. And so are we ruling out Joe Biden? In terms of who we like the most? Or? Yeah, I mean, as far as your generation, because obviously he appeals to the baby boomers to a certain degree. Right, yeah. Uh, I think age is like, if you look at predictors of whether or not you support Biden, it's all age. Like, he has the largest kind of age gap among all the candidates. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just think for a lot of young people, he's just not quite thinking big enough with his ideas. I think his health care plan doesn't even cover everybody, even when it's fully phased in, in the long term. Which is something that, as I said, I think most you know progressive young people think universal health care is something we should have had for quite some time now. So the fact that he's you know not even there yet with his policy proposals is a bit of a turnoff. And I just think he's not, um, I guess, something else that I think is pretty important to Tucker and I is kind of money in politics and the influence of corporations. And it just seems like since he's been kind of part of the old guard for so long, I don't get the sense that he's going to go after 
that as aggressively as some of the other more progressive candidates. I could see why you think that. What mm -hmm. about uh, the big topics they're talking about on uh, marijuana being decriminalized? Of course, uh, mass incarceration would be reversed. Mm -hmm. The death penalty eliminated. Are these all topics that young people agree with? I mean, I, th I mean, I like seeing kind of like young people, right? As a monolith, I don't want to like speak for you know Evo my age, right? Because there certainly are you know conserved, like more sure. conservative people, but at least among my friends who I talk politics with and who are progressive, like yeah, like those are all things that we think, like you know, right? Elimination of death penalty, almost you know for sure, um, and we could talk about why, but like decriminalization of marijuana, if not legalization, because yeah, I think there's lots of evidence that mass incarceration is just like has been you know an awful system, and I think some that people forget, right, is whether they're talking about the death penalty or mass incarceration, like these are all our, our tax dollars that are spent on this. I think that's something that gets missed a lot, right? So for example, one of the things people have been talking about eliminating is the cash bail system, which is what we have right now, which is for example, right? So if you're a poor person who's convicted of, you know, using marijuana, you go to jail. And if you can't bail yourself out, right, because you don't have the money, you are then have to live in jail for weeks and if not months. And, and that's federal, well, right, and it's federal money paying for that. Is it federal money, but that person can't work. Right. Oh, exactly. yeah. It's hugely unfair for tons of reasons. So, yeah. It's just a vicious cycle, is what it is. Right. But right. We, we know that. It's bad yeah. for everyone. So that's yeah. So the idea is that if you you know let like if you do things like decriminalize marijuana and kind of decrease the idea of mandatory minimum drug sentences, right? For for some there's some drug offenses where if you get caught that drug is like a mandatory minimum sentence of X number of years, and these things are just kind of ba like bad for our economy, bad for our society, and often like racially targeted and end up targeting like minorities more. So when we talk about like health insurance, for example, um, you know I really don't want to get into the to the gun issue because I'll get all riled up about that, right. but but um, uh, uh, President Trump recently uh, just ignored the whole topic after meeting with the NRA that we should do anything about assault. Yeah, 30-minute phone call. Yeah, 30-minute phone call with Wayne, evil yeah. Wayne. Um, and instead, of course, blames it all on the mental health of the shooter. Okay, we, we know this conversation, right? Right. So this goes back to um, then health care in general. And so the idea of if we had better health care, would we be able to understand some of those mental health issues better? Does it play in at all, or is that a stretch? I mean, I think I would certainly advocate for including mental health care, just really integrating that with thinking about larger health care in general. I think it's certainly not a substitute for gun regulations and things. But, yeah, so I'm certainly an advocate for stronger mental health care and definitely destigmatizing mental health, whether it be talking about it or getting care for it. But I think, I mean, health in general, if we weren't spending so much money uh, on prisons, then we might be able to provide it on services to oh, help yeah. people with addictions, <laughs> right. et cetera. Yeah, so exactly. I think that's that's a whole lot. Right, well, especially because theoretically, right, if you're if you're addicted to a drug, that's right, illegal right now, it's really hard to get treatment without exposing yourself to police and going to jail. Absolutely. Yeah. And then spending time and getting more caught up in the, in the right. whole system. Right. So I think this is a really uh, great article I saw yesterday in the New York Times about the rally playlists for each of the candidates. Oh, yeah, I read that. Yeah, Did I thought that was that? really funny. Yeah, it was, I, it was like a really cool uh, insight. Yeah, I actually I thought it was that. so interesting. So what do you guys think about, first of all, um, Kirsten Gillibrand, who, of course, is um, a senator from New York? 
I mean, yeah, again, so she's someone who's interesting because for, for, so for most of her life, she was like a Republican, a pretty conservative. She used to, you know, brag about like hunting her own turkeys on Thanksgiving and then cooking them. And, you know, she was like very pro-gun for a while. And then she kind of, right, went through this transformation is now where, you know, pretty much a pretty staunch progressive running on, you know, very progressive women's rights platforms and it's advocating for, you know, like progressive health care reform, lots of great things. And it's difficult because, you know, I like love lots of her policies now, but it's difficult to know, right, she became became progressive right when it kind of became the, the cool thing to be progressive in the Democratic Party. And so while I would certainly take her over a vast number of, you know, candidates who don't have the who don't have that current position, it's just I'll always be like I'll always probably favor someone like a Sanders or a Warren who just been consistent with, you know, their message for longer than Gillibrand who well, hope, had that transformation. I hope we have a few voters who are as educated as you guys and have actually been following like that. Her uh, playlist reflects her desire to appeal to female voters. Yeah, right. So uh, nearly three quarters of the artists are women, yeah. which is highly unusual. Right, right. yeah. Right. So yeah, so, but that's, so I think that's cool, because yeah, I mean, her message has definitely been like focused on women's rights. And this is kind of, I think, part of why like, you know, the, the double-edged sword of, like, narrowing the field, because it's nice to have someone on stage, right, Jill Byrne, even if, you know, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to vote for her in the primary, to be talked about women's rights. In the same way that Jay Inslee was a candidate who was, right, a lot, in long shot bid, never thought he was going to win, but he was in the first two debates to just talk about climate change, and that was his issue, and, you know, and, you know, if CNN actually, like, asked a question to the debaters about climate change, because Jay Inslee was on the stage, most likely, which was, they don't usually do that. So, I do think, you know, and, like, you know, Inslee's not going to be the next debate, he just dropped out. I'd be surprised if Jill O'Brien made the next debate. Yeah. And it's important to narrow the field, but I think having these candidates who have these niche issues, or not niche, who have these important priorities and are able to bring them to the stage is actually very valuable. Overall. Yes, overall, yeah. Connor? Yeah, I would agree. I think, yeah, I mean, it's obviously a balance in the act, but I think, especially at the beginning, definitely good to at least get it out there a little bit before you have to narrow it down to the candidates who are, you know, have at least realistic shots of winning the primary. So, uh, Cory Booker... Cory Booker, who's an interesting character. Uh, first, I, I sort of want to, uh, this is like a little litmus test on, on Cory Booker's message, but his playlist uh, projects an uplifting tone, fine, uh, but he's spreading his message of what, because he has this word in every single song and repeats itself over and over and over again. What's the word for Cory Booker? So it's like hope or something. Love. 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 Okay, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. So what do you guys think about him? I guess, I think, talking about top of this, I think he is actually a pretty corporatist um, Democrat when you look at kind of his record in Congress and his relationship to pharmaceutical companies. And you know, I think it's easy as an onlooker to sort of hear people sound like a broken record when it comes to money and politics. But if you start reading, reading about it, you really do see that it is such a pervasive problem that really affects pretty much every issue. And it is something that's really allowing corporations to get their interests at the expense of the vast majority of the American people. So the fact that he does have these strong relationships with you know, pharma companies and has acted in their favor a number of times in Congress, um, I would say that's probably the biggest turnoff for me when it comes to someone like Cory Booker. I, I could sort of live without uh, the, the drama yeah. that he projects. Yeah. 
That's yeah, I mean, so just kind of building off what Connor said, I remember a few years ago there was a bill, I believe, I think Bernie sponsored it, but I don't remember, that would have like allowed Americans to import prescription drugs from Canada, which are like radically decreased prices and made it affordable. Yes. And there were enough Republicans in Congress who supported for to pass, but there were a number of Democrats who actually voted against it, and Cory Booker was one of them. And you know, it's you know not hard to draw a line between him voting against that kind of bill and the money he takes from pharmaceutical companies. And so I think so he's another one almost in the Gillibrand category of like has an iffy track record saying oh yeah saying the right things now but you know has he does he really believe it is he just doing it because the party's saying it that's always the kind of worry with some of these candidates all right so Beto O'Rourke though seems to be a regular regular kind of guy the former congressman from Texas people say he doesn't have the experience uh they um I, I, I'll give you one more stab at what his whole theme is about regarding his playlist when he has a rally. I, his was all rock music. That's what I remember. Like, it was very Texic rock quote, music. Unquote, he was a wandering youth. Yeah. You know, I'm sure he'd love to lose that label. Huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think he's, uh, it's definitely easier to look good and exciting when you're running against Ted Cruz, at least in the eyes of Democrats. Yeah. So I do think. Some of the a lot of the excitement surrounding him has kind of flamed out a bit. Oh yeah, he's and, been pretty tanky yeah, in the polls. Yeah, and it doesn't Crazy. seem like. I mean, listening to him in the debates, it just doesn't seem like what he's saying. You know, I mean, and I think I mean he's he's really been on all this storytelling, and pretty much I think every answer he had some you know story of meeting this girl and whatever place. And I think it is starting to get a little tiring for some people and coming off as a little bit inauthentic. So uh, one of the last questions I really would like to address is. During these debates, uh, because of the experience that most Americans have had with uh, a non-issue type president, where instead we have the drama and the name calling, and I think there's a lot of frustrated Americans out there saying, you know, can we just talk about what's actually going on in this country? How do we have debates where we stay on message? Can we have debates where we are not uh, catering to, you know, another type of politic. It's tough, yeah. I think you're you're right on. Then when you look at like CNN and the moderators, I mean, what they're looking for and what's kind of get the big biggest ratings or sound bites is playing up disagreements and conflicts between whichever candidates. And the way you get more speaking time, what it seems like is you have to go out, go after someone, so, and you know they get time to respond to your criticism, and then it becomes this back and forth. Good so you're, TV, it's good TV. It's good TV, but you know. As you kind of said, it's just dis disincentivizing a little bit, really going in depth to some of these issues and being able to explain, you know, real disagreements without getting into these kind of back and forth spats. Yeah, I, so I, I definitely agree with that. I think, right, if you look at even like the screen, uh, at least the most recent CNN debate, they'd have like one candidate talking and then they just have like the video of another candidate reacting, like, right. like trying to cause, you know, some sort of disagreement. But I do think there's something to be said for like, teasing out those disagreements, right? Because, these, you know, when, like, John Delaney, who's, like, one of the most moderate candidates, is talking, you know, is, like, arguing with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on health care, like, that's a really important debate. Are we going to have, you know, universal coverage through the government? Is it going to be public option? Like, these are important debates that people are having. And so I, you know, I get why right, we don't want to increase divisiveness within the party, but I would say personally, and I, I think a lot of Americans don't want to watch a debate where it's just, you know, two hours of them saying, we hate Donald Trump, we hate Donald Trump, right? Like, I think... 
And I think one of the examples that I believe it was Joe Biden was talking about his climate policy, and he's like, I would, you know, rejoin the Paris Climate Accords, and everyone clapped. And I think Cory Booker was one who's like, yeah, we all think that. Like, you shouldn't get applause for saying that. He's like, right. that's kindergarten, right? Like, let's right. talk yeah. about where we disagree, <laughs> not where we all agree. And it was like a cool moment. Something, something a little more sophisticated. So when's the next debate, and what should we expect? Are you guys on that? I believe it's, so I think it's, it's, it's either, it's got to be late September, right? Because I think they've been having them about every month. That's what it would seem like. What to expect? Yeah, I mean, I guess a pretty crucial factor is whether it ends up being one night or two nights. Um, but, you know, hopefully you'll be able to go more in-depth to differences in issues when there are less candidates on stage. And, but yeah, being able to draw out the important issues a little bit more. Yeah. Are, there, are there moderators you don't like or people you think that aren't doing a good job? I mean, it's tricky to pick these people because I know that at one point there was an argument that they didn't have any women moderating. And mm -hmm. uh, we've gone back and forth with that. What, what do you guys think? I mean, I just think, right, each of these, you know, news networks definitely has, right, their own kind of preferred candidates. So it's clear that they are, they're antagonistic with certain candidates, you know, over others. Sure. Um, but that being said, you know, like, I think they're, like, I don't know, I wouldn't, there's not, like, some moderators I'd say are ideal. I think they all have their own flaws. Um, but yeah, definitely, like, there was talk of having, like, uh, an Asian moderator or an Asian American moderator in the next debate because, like, Andrew Yang is on stage and he's, you know, one of the first, like, Southeast Asian candidates to make it this far. So I think uh, having, you know, moderators that reflect the, the makeup of the debaters, who hopefully in turn reflect the makeup of the country, is probably a good thing. I suppose. I mean, I think really the most important thing is to get these people to be honest about what yeah. what their agenda really is mm -hmm. instead of playing to what they think it should be because that's going to get them to the next round. Yeah. And, I mean, is there any way for Americans to, to see through that? Is there any way for us to educate ourselves while watching the debate? I mean, look at, I guess, two things. Look at, you know, the websites. Like, go to the websites and read the policies. And also look at voting records. That, you know, right? Instead of listening to what the candidate, right? If, you know, someone's up there saying that they're really anti-war, go see if they voted for the Iraq war, right? Like, you know, a bunch of candidates. Military someone, spending. Military spending, right? Like, see if the candidates voted for Trump's recent increase in military spending bill, right? If, if that's a priority for you. You know, for, instead of just taking the candidate's word for it, you know, one step be to look at their website and look at their policies. But even more than that, go look at what they've actually done. And, you know, it's like very easy. There are lots of open voting records. There's an OpenSecrets.com, which discloses campaign finance donations for all these candidates. So you can see where they've taken money from in the past. And kind of, instead of taking people's word for it, or even taking the media's word for it, take the five to ten minutes and do the investigating yourself. All right. Well, it's really important to ask the question of forgiving student loans. Last question. I mean, we afford it. I guess I'm... Probably, I'd, I'd call myself lukewarm on that policy. I certainly understand the, the impetus for it. Uh, and I'm certainly in favor of going forward, uh, lessening the burden of student loan debt and making it much more favorable for students. On the other hand, I do, I am sympathetic to the perspective that, you know, if you're someone who spent 10 years paying off these massive loans and you had to work really hard um, and, you know, cut back your consumption a lot to be able to pay them back, I do understand if those people would not love the idea of this loans going forward being forgiven and I have read that it's actually not the most progressive policy so I'd, I'd call myself lukewarm on it I'm certainly uh, you know on board with kind of the idea of it but it would be a lot of money and I think the question has to, has to be could that money 
is this the best way we can spend this money to sort of help the the future of young people? Yeah, right. I, I, I agree with my brother on this one, right? I think, yeah, like, lukewarm. I think it's kind of, it's good, like, virtue signaling. Like, I definitely like the idea of, like, limiting student loan debt. I think we both definitely, I don't want to speak for him, but, like, free, free community college going mm -hmm. forward, if not, right? Like, free government-sponsored four-year college going right. forward. But I think we definitely both but support that. higher education that. overall, colleges, universities at the highest tier, you, these are institutions with the the best professors the, what, what have you they cost a lot of money yeah and the that's the bottom line and you know there is never going to be complete equality anywhere mm -hmm. and education is one right. of those places but i do think so that, i mean the, the i think the more the counter to that in a way is that right when we made high school education subsidized by the government right all like what you needed to survive in the country was pretty much a high school diploma i think the argument that now that's not enough right, right. in order to get a job in the workforce you that's need right. some sort of college education, and so the government should probably provide that to you. I, you know, I, I am definitely sympathetic to that argument, so I would definitely support going forward, right, free community college, if not for, like, free, you know, state four-year college. The canceling of student loan debt, I think, is a little bit more complicated. And I think it also comes back to uh, the issue of pure opportunity. Mm -hmm. And that, I mean, you can include incarceration in that. You can, all of that, Americans have, should have opportunity. Yeah, and I'm, if you're just thinking about kind of opportunity in the broader context of the American dream. If you look at our country right now and sort of, you know, we like to think of America as this place where you can start out super poor and then by working hard you can rise to the top, which certainly still happens and there are, you know, great stories of that, that you hear, but actually that sort of pathway is less likely to happen in America compared to any European country. Like in the U.S., the class that you were born into is more predictive of your future class than any other developed nation. And I think that's largely because of the inequality and inequality of opportunity that we currently have. So I think uh, a lot of these things are free community college and even healthcare because, you know, it's very hard to work if you have some debilitating disability or illness. Um, these are all things that I think are very much in line with kind of what we like to think America should be, which is a place where you can be born into anything and then by working hard you can rise up. Well, of course, and that the big issue is which we're not going to get into is taxes. Right. So, right. Anyway, yeah. the Wilkie brothers, wow. Okay, so uh, Connor and Tucker, you'll both be at Brown, and that is going to be such an exciting time for you. And I thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, this was thanks. great. Yeah, it was cool to talk about this Thank stuff. you. All right, uh, this is Kim Burns with What's the Story. Thanks for listening.